Hello, and welcome to the Short Gun Sportsman, a podcast about handgun hunting brought to you by Handgun Hunters International. My name is Ryan Hoover, and I'm your host. I believe handgun hunting is the most rewarding way to hunt, and it's something I want to share with as many people as I can. If you are at all interested in getting your own game meat, I want to challenge you to a way of hunting that is good for both your spirit and your body, so you can become the confident, self-reliant person you were meant to be. Today's episode is really special and just so interesting. It's about some of the most famous handgun hunting cartridges of all time, the JDJ cartridges. JD Jones developed these cartridges starting in the 70s with the um, intent to be able to take advantage of rifle bullets in single shot handguns, mostly the contenders. And these cartridges are well-known. Cartridges like the 375 and 6.5 JDJ are well-known and still popular handgun hunting rounds. Well, today I got to speak with Brian Alberts of SSK Firearms. Brian has been with them almost 40 years, coming up through the ranks uh, to eventually now he is the manager of SSK Firearms. Brian has a wealth of knowledge. He knows so much about all of these cartridges and how they were developed and what they were developed for and all the little details about them. It was so fun for me as a former gunsmith to be able to pick his brain about them. And there's just great history here. Brian is also a stand-up guy, really nice, really generous with his knowledge and his time. And I'm super grateful that he took the time to do this interview with us today. And I know that we're going to be taking advantage of Brian Albert's wisdom as we go forward. But before we do, I'd like to invite everyone here that's listening to subscribe to our free digital magazine, The Six Gunner, which you can sign up for at subscribepage.com forward slash The Six Gunner. This, again, is a free digital magazine that we put out as HHI. It is written exclusively by HHI members and contains all kinds of great information about experiences in the field, uh, ways to do interesting loads for your gun. For instance, we had a really good article on shot shells. So many hunting stories and reviews of gear. And again, all by HHI members. So I invite you to subscribe today. Go to subscribepage.com forward slash the six gunner. All right, here we go. I hope you enjoy my interview with Brian Alberts. Brian Alberts, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Glad to be here, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. You were recommended to me uh, as someone I needed to speak to about JDJ cartridges because of your good work at SSK Industries. How long have you worked at SSK? Uh, I started work at SSK in 1984, and I continued to to, uh, work uh, for JD until uh, the business was... uh, subsequently sold in uh in night or uh, in 2018 okay did y'all did y'all stay in the same location uh, uh initially uh we worked out of jd's house in the first few years oh wow <laughs> uh, yeah we worked out of his basement uh for probably the first three years that we were actually a functioning a full-fledged functioning company um he had done it as a side note until that point mm-hmm and then uh, we worked uh, from his home for, for, like I said, approximately three years. Uh, at that point, we moved to a to a shop um, 
not far from his home uh, in the town of Wintersville, Ohio. And uh, we remember we remained there for 32 years. Do you what? So what is your role at SSK? What do you do? So my current role is manager of SSK. Uh, my roles through the years have been varied. I've done probably every job there is to do here at SSK and still do a whole host of them. Do you, is your background just as a kind of a machinist, gunsmith, tinkerer? Uh, machinist, mm-hmm. yeah, um, machinist background, uh, machinist and electrical. Uh, and then um, just a, a lifelong uh, a shooter, reloader. Uh, I actually met J.D. Jones when I was 16 years old. Uh, I was shooting uh, shooting at the local uh, firing range, and um, he uh, was kind of interested in what I was doing. Uh, someone so young, I was shooting a, a Ruger M77 and 220 Swift with the inertial scope on it. Hmm. And uh, I had a whole group of hand loads that I was working through, and he just walked over and introduced himself. Interesting. Was your background in firearms before you joined SSK? Well, I have always been interested in firearms Mm -hmm. uh, and had done a lot of shooting since I was very young. My father was always involved in shooting sports and hunting. Uh, So I'd been involved in it for a number of years before I started uh, at SSK, but I I did not uh, have any sort of career in firearms until I started uh, working for SSK. So one of the most famous things about SSK, obviously, especially to us handgun hunters, are the line of JDJ cartridges named after J.D. Jones, obviously. What kind of started the JDJ thing at SSK? Uh, So just the need for for better accuracy, uh, better power, better performance out of handgun cartridges that were available at the time. You know, they were generally lower powered and performance was not not great, kind of subpar. Another issue with a lot of the early Wildcats was that they were very difficult to form. Mm-hmm. case life was poor so we you know just to, to to create something that was easy for your basic reloader to make something that had a very durable case and of course something that was just top of the line performance gotcha so when you guys approached this well first were you involved with the design of these as well as the production uh later on mm-hmm. uh, the early cartridges no JD uh, first started the 6.5 and the 375, and I uh, believe the first ringers were ordered in 1978. Mm. Did you, when y'all were working on these JDJ cartridges, were what were some of the benchmarks that you were? Was it a velocity thing, a pressure thing, or you know efficiency in short barrels? I mean, it's probably a little bit of all of the above. But what were y'all's benchmarks? Well, right. And again, uh, I think initially we were looking for something that that increased the velocities over what was available at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a lot of rifle bullets that in those days were were designed to work at a little bit higher velocities than any of the handgun stuff. So we had to come up, we wanted to come up with cartridges that would work with the rifle, good rifle bullets that were available. So we we had, you know, we had velocity ranges in mind that, you know, that we wanted to touch on, uh, you know, and and to get uh, to get these projectiles to work. Well, so when you do these things, those bullets are also the most accurate bullets. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of went hand in hand. So when you guys identified uh, kind of a need, it, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of it was because you saw bullets that were designed to work in a certain velocity range and you wanted to create a cartridge that could push a, bu- a bullet to that velocity range from a handgun. Right. Yeah, that's correct. So when you identified kind of that bullet or that caliber, you know, meaning 338, 30, whatever, what was your process from conception to testing? So, uh, first of all, we would take a projectile. We would look at a certain group of projectiles or projectiles that 
through shooting various other calibers, we felt that would be good candidates. Uh, you know, that would go that would work in the velocity range that we thought we could we could achieve uh, in a contender or a 14-inch barrel, which is predominantly what we work with in those days. Things have kind of gotten morphed into long lengths and some of this other stuff, but mm. in those days it was a 14-inch contender. So we would look at you know certain bullets and say, well, you know, this bullet is a little soft. You know, we, we did a lot of shooting, and JD had done a ton of shooting at you know, a lot of game animals and a lot of live action shooting with various things, and kind of determined, you know, hey, this projectile looks like this would this would work in this in this velocity range. So we would we would start looking, uh, you know, at cartridge cases, and again, you know, we hit on two of them that were really great. So. You know, the, the 225 Winchester and the 444 Marlin were two that, as a cartridge cases, were just outstanding. I mean, they they had, they were rimmed. They were extremely durable cartridge cases. They were easy to form, and they offered great case life, very strong cartridge cases. You know, we, we, we predominantly based a lot of the early ones on, on those two cartridge cases. So we would look at, all right, well, what do we have to do to get this cartridge what do we have to do to form it? What, what's going to be required to form it? Are we going to need form dies? Are we not going to need form dies? So we would start, you know, taking some cartridges and necking them to the prospective bore diameters. You know, we would do that a host of different ways. I mean, we had a very substantial die collection, um, which allowed us to, <laughs> I imagine. to go, you know, I mean, you know, hundreds. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so it was, we, we always could come up with something uh, that would, allow us to, to, to get in the ballpark on something. And then we would look at, you know, how easy it was to form. Did we have to do anything unusual? What worked best? And we would kind of refine that a little bit. And then, and again, with a lot of the stuff with those two cartridge cases, we, we kind of knew they would work uh, pretty well. So we would, uh, at that point, you know, we would, uh, we would have a reamer made. We would contact our reamer manufacturer who predominantly always was Dave Manson, mm-hmm. uh, who is uh Manson Precision now, but back in the day, Dave worked for Climber, so mm, right. uh, he was he was big behind a lot of the, the early stuff and then getting us good usable tooling. And then uh, Dave has always always seemed to to know what we were looking for. So you know we would uh, provide Dave with some measurements on things, and uh, we would get a reamer going, and then we would uh, chamber barrel form cases, work out what we needed to do to form them. Uh, and sort of those procedures uh, in the case of the 225 was simply necking them up uh, and fire forming them. So, you know, that was pretty straightforward. Uh, and then we would just uh, work on developing the loads from that point on. Man, as a, as a, not only a gun nut, but a former, I call myself a recovering gun builder. Some of the questions I have first, the 444 and the 225 case, what is it about those cases specifically that makes them so well suited for this? Well, in the, in, first and foremost, they were rimmed. Um, they mm. were rimmed, and that was a big deal in the contender. Right. Rimless cases are okay, but they're not ideal. Uh, they're not ideal in a single shot. The, the, the strength, they were developed uh, for, you know, in the case of the 225, you know, uh, high pressure, you know, into the 50,000s. Mm-hmm. 444, again, into the 50,000s, or, or, you know, the head was plenty strong enough to handle that sort of stuff. So we had cartridge cases that were very durable that we knew would last and guys would be able to reload them a long time. I have 225 cases that I've probably reloaded t- over 20 times. Wow. Um, so that's a big benefit for the reloader. And the cartridges cases last a long time. Whereas, you know, in the day, a lot of guys were shooting 30 Hertz, 357 Hertz, and it was very difficult to form the cases. 
Case life was generally poor because 30, 30 cases generally is not a high pressure case. Case life was generally poor with a lot of them because you're necking them down, neck reaming, those sorts of things. So in the 225 and the 444, we just had a rim case that uh, had really good capacity. Brass hardness was about right. Uh, they would form very easily uh, and, and they would hold up. The cartridge cases would 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 last. Uh, JD has always told everybody, he says, hey, I'm a shooter. I'm not a I'm not a bench rester. I don't want to spend time reloading. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be able to load my ammo and have these cases last a long time. And and, and those two cartridge cases let us do that. Uh, 444 is another uh, same in a lot of ways. And that's, um, I mean, I've had a lot of 444 cases and 375 JDJ and 309 and any of those uh, JDJ Wildcats that, that last necessity of 20 firings. Wow. That's a lot, <laughs> especially for it, a It is a case. lot, and, and yeah. it's a lot. So that's, you know, those are the, some of the perimeters that uh, we we wanted that case life, and those were, uh, you know, reasons we picked those cases because they, 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 they gave that to us. So when you talk about easy to form, what are kind of the requirements for, for you saying this is an easy to form case? So um, basically the way we looked at it is we didn't want a neck ream, no, re- no neck turning, no neck reaming, mm-hmm. no crazy trimming, none of that stuff. Basically, just you could take, uh, in the case of the 225, we just uh, had the dies made with the elliptical or tapered expanders. So one pass in the, in the die, neck the case up to the, to the correct caliber, and then loading it with a fireform load and firing it in the gun created the case. We, we, we didn't want to do a lot of crazy stuff with the cases. We, we, we wanted to get away from neck turning, neck reaming, cutting off of cartridge cases, for expensive form dies. Mm-hmm. We wanted the cartridges to be made with basic, very basic dies. All of the 225 base JDJs could just be necked up and fire formed. There was no special die required mm-hmm. at all. 444 Marlin from 416 down to 338. Just run them in a die and they're done. 309, 8 millimeter required a fire form step. And when we looked at those two, we knew we could not form them with a 40 degree shoulder die set. So we looked at what was available. So we just looked at a 308 die in the case of the 309. Mm-hmm. You just take a 308, a 308 full length sizer die and neck a 444 down to 30 cal and fire form. Hmm. You know, most guys had access to a 308 die. So uh, in the case, we didn't have to you know, have any kind of real expensive form die. We just tell a guy, hey, do you have a set of 308 dies? Yep. Well, you have a form die for a 309. So so we looked at it from that perspective. I mean, we uh, we didn't have a lot of uh, elaborate, uh, you know, forming dies and forming procedures. Most were just neck downs or neck ups and then, and then shoot them in the barrel. This has always been interesting to me because I've never developed a wildcat from scratch. What are, like, when you are saying, okay, I'm like, let's take the example you're just talking about. You're saying a 444 to a 309 JDJ. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, your dimension, your the dimension that you know you're starting with is the bore diameter or the caliber of the bullet. So when you decide things like, you know, length of rim to where the shoulder starts, the angle of the shoulder, how long the neck's going to be, the taper of the case, all that kind of thing. Is that something that you guys just kind of had some standards on? I mean, because when you're going to get a reamer made, right, you you kind of need to know those things. And so when you have a reamer made, to, to me, I'm, I've always been curious about how do you know what you need without the reamer, but how do you get the reamer without knowing what you need? Okay, well, you know, basically we kind of knew what we wanted to mention. We wanted minimum dot, we wanted minimum dot body taper. 
on a little bit, but minimum. And, 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 you know, some of this, we worked out along the way, you know, this went from, you know, 1978 and then into the 80s, we did a, you know, from, from probably 84 into the early 90s, we did a flurry of them. There was a, uh, quite a number of them that we did. Mm-hmm. And um, so we knew what we kind of wanted. We, we, we wanted minimum body taper, 40 degree shoulder. Uh, those were our requirements with that. So when you kind of know those numbers and you have a, a guy who's a good reamer maker, you work with him and you figure out those numbers because a lot of them tie together. So we would neck some cases down and we would see kind of where the neck came out and we would do some measuring and then we would look at, you know, just basically looking at some numbers on some other cartridges or on neck length, you know, how long do we want the neck? Do we want it this long, that long? You know, we looked at the bullets that were available. Where do we want to seat that bullet? How are the cantilors on these bullets generally? Where do they sit if they have them? And how do we want this to sit in the case? So you make dummies up, you make dummy cartridges up, uh, you neck some stuff down, like in the case of 309, you neck stuff down to 308, and you kind of take a look at that. You kind of look where you want the bullet to seat. Uh, another thing we try to do with most of these cartridges, and it has to do with the length of the throat, is the bullets that we wanted to, p- to focus on, we wanted to basically be able to seat base of bullet even with the base of the neck. Mm. So we would look at some of these bullets and their lengths, and again, we would put together some dummies and we would just figure out, you know, with calipers and measuring and a little bit of decor, dead, dead, dead reckoning and, 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 and previous experience where we wanted that to be. And, and we would come up kind of with numbers like that. It, it, it was, you know, there were no computers that you plug numbers into and it gave you some sort of magical formula. Right. It, just, it was just a lot of basically bench work, uh, a lot of bench work. You know, you sit there and. Uh, again, make up dummies and and take a, a host of bullets that you wanted to, that that you wanted to work in this thing, and you would just lay the thing out and you would you know, write down measurements, and uh, in those days we had a blank reamer uh, page where you could fill out the numbers that you want, and we would we would just work the numbers until we kind of got it where we wanted it. We would submit it to the reamer maker, and he would say, all right, well, you know, this is going to give you this, or this is, you know, we could do this. This is going to be a little bit better, and you kind of work with him a little bit. And pretty soon you come up with a reamer. You come up with dimensions that he can make a reamer from. How many? And we generally never missed it by very much. I mean, you know, most of the time uh, it was easy to figure out neck thickness. Uh, Once you necked one down, you could figure that all out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you had a lot of, you know, there are lots of other cartridges that were similar. You kind of looked at what was out there and, and what was available. You know, the neck thickness was something that was fairly simple to figure out. But generally the things we would change or have to change generally very slight we would um sometimes tweak the throats a little bit uh we've always kept the throats of our reamers within a thou bullet diameter so that the mm. long long throats are not a problem if the bullet's not rattling down it right uh so we always kept the throats within a thou bullet diameter and a good example was our 6.5 jdj i mean it shoots as well with an 85 grain bullet as it does with a 140. Uh, those were things that we we like to do and uh, we did with these cartridges that's that that was a question i was going to ask you about throat um, length and diameter and for people listening who don't know what that is that's the section of the chamber that's directly in front of the neck it basically is a very slight funnel that guides the bullet into the rifle right. and eases it into the rifling so with uh, when you guys were deciding that, cause you know, like I said, I, I used to build guns and 
you know, there would be a caliber, you know, the, the, the six, five Creedmoor is a great example of this where you buy a Sammy spec reamer. Well, a lot of loaded ammunition doesn't fit in that because they want to load those bullets long. So when you guys were developing this, these cartridges, rather, did you err on the side of being able to have a longer throat? Yes. Okay. Uh, in most cases, yes, absolutely. We did. Uh, and then we looked at what bullets we felt would be the most used the most and the weights that would be most commonly used. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll use the 6.5 as an example because it's by far, you know, probably in the 375, the two most successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but we looked at uh, bullets like the 120 grain spear uh, and later the 120 grain nozzler. Uh, but, you know, the original 6.5 was kind of set up with a 120 grain spear, a seated base of bullet, even with the base of the neck in terms of throat. And later, we kind of changed, tweaked that a little bit when the nozzler came out, the 120-grain nozzler ballistic tip. Uh, we would seat it base of, bo- base of the bow tail, even with the base of the neck. So that was kind of where we went with on the throats for those. We just seated some bullets uh, that we felt we were going to use the most and, and, and kind of came up with it from there and, and through making dummy cartridges and measuring and, and those sorts of things. And a little bit of trial and error once they were done. Sure. How concerned were you guys with neck tension and how neck neck length related to that? Uh, so we used we worked with what we had. Uh, in mm-hmm. the case of the 444, we can make the necks a little bit longer. Uh, in the case of the 225, the neck is shorter, just simply because that's how we kind of came up with the powder capacity we wanted. It ended up with a little bit shorter neck. It's at least a caliber. You know, the neck is a caliber uh, long, mm-hmm. which is was our minimum. You know, we thought if it was that way, uh, it was okay. And we, we never, we've never had any issue right. to the contrary. So uh, we looked at the cartridge case, you know, the 444 and the capacity let us go with a little bit longer neck on those. Uh, but we didn't want to really go too crazy on it. Uh, we wanted lots of powder space. So, you know, we, we probably pushed the necks towards being maybe a tad shorter uh, in some cases. But... Um, not always. Yeah, I mean, and that makes, obviously, you don't have the um, requirement of bullets staying in place in a magazine. So, right. you know, that, that, that takes a lot. But I've, And I'm sure it's, uh, this is a, a highly technical detail that I'm just curious about. I, I know that it's probably not as big a deal, you know, in the overall scheme of things. Um, so uh, were all the JDJ cartridges developed for the contender? Uh, no. I mean, all the early ones were. Right. Uh, all, all the ones in the early days uh, were all developed for the contender. Uh, but we did have a whole host of cartridges that we developed for the XP 100. Oh yes. Uh, this was in the, this was in the days before the encore was available. So we also built a large number of XP. Uh, Doc has a, has a number of them. Doc Rogers has a number of them. Yeah, I know. And, uh, so, uh, we also did a lot of work with the XP 100 and we developed, uh, we developed cartridges, uh, uh, bigger bore cartridges for the XP. We kind of felt that you know, the stuff, anything under 375 had really been done a lot. Mm-hmm. So we didn't do a lot of work with those, but stuff larger than 375, uh, we did a host of Wildcats based on uh, the 350 Magnum case. Uh, we did probably, I think, four uh, based on that. Uh, there was a 411 and a 416 whammy that we did for the XP100. Uh, so, uh, you know, the early stuff uh, was really contender focused. Uh, with some XP stuff uh, thrown in there uh, as well. 
That's true. And, you know, I don't think about the XPs as much as I think about the contenders, you know, because that's, you guys are, like you said, the 6.5 and the 375, probably the ones you're best known for. But, you know, in the XP100, you have a lot broader range as far as strength of the action. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had um, you know, a huge range in the XP and we build XPs and everything. Uh, we developed some very large XPs, <laughs> uh, 50 cow XPs, uh, 12.9 uh, by 50.8. Uh, and bigger um, that we did uh, in the XP100. Uh, and then we did everything in between. I mean, um, you know, a lot of, uh, we have we have close to 500 reamers. So oh, wow. not all of those are contender cartridges. Mm -hmm. So we did we did a lot of work with the XP. We did a lot of XP100s uh, uh, in, in, in the, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s. You rarely see one now, but um, it was very popular for handgun hunting, especially guys who, who wanted to, um, you know, really extend the range and increase the power, you know, for handgun hunting. And mm -hmm. the XP was the obvious choice. It was just readily available it was a very extremely accurate gun you know it uh, it was it was a good gun for that purpose it uh, it lended itself well to customization mm -hmm. um, we just did a lot of work with that i wish it was still readily available yes yes yeah, yeah. so uh, the contender though i'm i want to talk about that for a minute what what are the limits of the contender that you guys worked on because you know a lot of people there's a lot of information out there some of it keyboard warrioring but you know people will say Okay, well, the, the the operating pressure of a 223 or whatever is, what, 55,000, I think, or something like that. and But that's okay to put in a contender. Why isn't it okay to put something that operates at that pressure that's a larger caliber in the contender? What are the limits of that well, platform? So that's an easy one in, in terms of physical size. Mm -hmm. uh, the case head thrust, you know, is with a 223 is very small, very small. So... You've got a very small head size, so you can get away with that in most anything. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to overwhelm the contender just due to the fact that the cartridge case head size is small and the case head thrust on the frames is pretty light. Now, you could go, and again, a lot of this was trial and error. I mean, you know, we kind of knew where everything was at, If you, if you, you know, especially with the load development. You know, we did a we did a ton of shooting. I mean, we wore out a lot of contenders. I don't know too many people have worn out as many contenders as we have, yeah. and worn out barrels and and all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I have some of the very, couple of the very early ones, and I mean, they had thousands of barrels on them, let alone rounds. I don't even know they, you know. So we just hung them up. So I mean, you would see trends. You know, that's one of the reasons you do a lot of test shooting with things, that, you know, powders you want to use and bullets you want to use. You do a lot of test shooting and it pretty, you know, it, it becomes apparent what, what, where you can be with the gun, you know, are going to start running into problems with, with gun life pretty quick uh, with some of these things. You know, we just based a lot of that on shooting and test work. You know, Hey, we've shot this a bunch. We've shot you know, thousands and thousands of rounds through the gun. The gun holds up well. The durability is good. We're not seeing accelerated wear with the gun. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of it was based on that, you know, we, you know, of course we saw some stuff that we didn't do or we tried or we tested and, you know, I said, Hey, you know, the, the guy is going to take that. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, and again, you know, people, people also have trouble with understanding the difference between blowing a gun up and damaging the gun. Uh, you know, blowing a gun up is a detonation. Generally right. what happens in the case of overpressuring a contender is it's, it's going to stretch. It's going to stretch. And then it's going to pop open. You know, when the gun, when the, the original contenders, when they popped open, that is a problem. The gun's got something wrong with it. Stop shooting immediately. Don't continue. Um, you know, and in the day when Thompson Center was around, 
what you did was you sent it back to them and they had got the guns had a lifetime warranty on them and they'd just replace it with a new one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they'd yeah. check it, they'd mm -hmm. put it on their frame gauges and they would replace it. Uh, we used to get a lot of calls from guys, you know, and said, Hey, my gun came open and all this. And, you know, I said, Hey, your gun is damaged. Your barrel, or your gun is damaged. One or the other mm -hmm. stop shooting. It. I said, think about this. What would you think if your bolt action rifle flew open? <laughs> yeah. That's what's happening. Right. That's what's happening. You know, you would stop shooting it immediately, <laughs> you know? So that's the same with the contender. Uh, yeah. Uh, that makes sense. So the, the, biggest indicator of a failure would be the frame stretching. I mean, like the most common, not the biggest, the, the most, the com most common was stretch frames. Mm -hmm. uh, you can, you can see the stretch. If you hold this frame up in the light and look down the side of it, mm -hmm. um, right where the standing breach starts, uh, they would stretch mm -hmm. and, and, and that would be the first indication. And then you would have, uh, you know, again, uh, locking shelf issues, you know, normally when they come open, the locking shelf chipped, the bolt chips uh, the locking shelf. You know, normally when that happened, the frame was not repairable. Uh, now, there were cases, you know, where the frame, the locking shelf could just be worn out, uh, and and TC developed ways to repair that. And a lot of time, in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. uh, they would uh, they would uh, beam weld a new hardened insert in there and repair the frame if it wasn't stretched. Right. But later on, they got away from doing that, and they just pretty much replaced them most of the time. So I want to go back real quick to something you said that you're right is an easy one that I think a lot of people have a misconception about, or especially a lot of people who haven't had a lot of experience with this platform, is the difference between case thrust and just overall operating pressure. And I always like to think right. of it as a difference like between, you know, between poking your finger on something and punching something. You know, the bigger surface area of a large case is going to you know, by definition, push harder at a, at the same pressure. So, and then, and again, that works the same way in reverse with the 4570. Mm -hmm. We used to get a lot of calls. How can you put a 4570 contender? I said, mm -hmm. well, that works at shotgun pressures. Right. Yeah. So you could put that big case in there uh, and it works at, you know, mild pressures compared to rifles. Right. Uh, any modern rifle, um, you know, in the twenties. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, that was easily manageable by the contender frame. So there's a disconnect, a little bit of a disconnect, uh, with some folks about physical size and, and actually what it's doing to the gun. They're not necessarily connected. Right. And then that's further reinforced by the fact that shooting a 223 14 inch contender and shooting an unbraked 4570 14 inch contender is a very different experience. <laughs> yeah, tre tremendously different experience. You know, and yeah. so that can lead people to have a misconception about about power. <laughs> yes, tremendously different. Uh, uh, I, I I can't even tell you how many how many phone calls it used to take over guys uh, the first time. You know, we were the first company to do the forty five seventy in the contender, mm -hmm. and um, uh, the factory was a little leery of it. Uh, not necessarily because it did anything with the gun, but. You know, this was the early guns, you know, you had wood grips and all these mm -hmm. sorts of things. And, you know, we were putting Pac-Mire grips on these guns. We were putting Magnapore or Magnaporm or, or muzzle brakes on them. So we were doing things a little bit differently. We had our own, developed our own scope base. So uh, the scopes weren't going to fly off and hit you in the head. So, uh, but I, I talked to a lot of guys with their first experience shooting a 4570 in a contender. And um, generally, it was uh, much were, different than their normal uh, kind of encounter with their 44 mag or whatever they had at the time. Right. Did they call you and say, hey, you want to buy a barrel? Well, you know, it's funny. We rarely got that. Uh, matter of fact, you know, guys were like, man, this thing is a really a handful, but man, does it shoot. Mm, and um, mm -hmm. 
you know, that was a universal comment. You know, he says, I can hold it. Man, you can hit anything with it. And I said, well, yeah, that's right. That's, that's kind of why we like it. So that, that was more likely, more, more the comment that you got than anybody saying, hey, holy cow. <laughs> you know, I gotta get rid of this thing. Yeah. It's gonna knock my head off. Yeah. What uh the forty five seventy brought to mind something that is kind of near and dear to my heart because when I had a shop, a lot of what I did was old Winchester and Winchester replicas and sharps and high walls, low walls, etc. And so I really became fascinated by the quote unquote buffalo cartridges. And I know that you right. guys have stuffed <laughs> some some of those cartridges into the contender and encore platform. What, yes. what, you know, like the 5070 government, uh, I've even yes. seen, I think it was probably an encore platform, the 5095 sharps, things like yep. that. What, this is purely self-serving because I'm curious about it, but what, what have y'all done with those older late 19th century cartridges? And I imagine they're a hoot to, to shoot. Um, uh, but what mm-hmm. have y'all done with those? So uh, we've been messing with those for quite a long time. When Thompson Center brought out the TCR rifle, mm-hmm. we started making barrels for that. And we really kind of went after those cartridges. We did. We started doing all the Nitro Express cartridges in the TCR. And, of course, a lot of the Sharps cartridges, uh, 5070, uh, 5090, 5110, 5140, to name a couple. Uh, and then we had a whole host of 45s. Uh, I think uh, reamers go up to, I've got a 45-120 reamer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we would do a whole host of those cartridges in the TCR in the early days. So the 50 cows we didn't like to do in the contender. Not You know, the 50-70 is all right pressure-wise in the contender, but the problem you have when you go 50 cow in the contender is you got to mount the scope down the barrel a little ways because right. the chamber gets pretty thin and you don't have enough uh, hole, hole depth uh, to put good screw holes in. So... We kind of got away from doing those just because the guns were iron sight guns only a lot of times, and that's not what really uh, guys wanted to do. You guys wanted to put scopes on. So when the Encore came out, that let us put all these things uh, into the same kind of gun. You know, the TCR obviously was discontinued, and, and, and after the fire at TC, it never came back. So when the Contender came out, uh, or the Encore came out, uh, we, we started doing all these cartridges in the Encore. And we go up to uh, 500 Nitro, uh, uh, 500, uh, Sharps is what we go up to in the Encore. Man, I think I read, I think it was about the the 900 JDJ, but it's something that I read for him a long time that he liked to shoot, or shooting tracers were like flaming basketballs. Yeah, so uh, that was an extremely popular Encore barrel that we still do. We still offer, uh, do a number of them. Uh, it's a 50 Alaskan mm. Um with a fast twist, a one and nine twist, shoot 50 BMG projectiles. And we also do that in a 5140 sharps. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do the same thing with it. Uh, you just put a fast twist in the sharps and you shoot 50 BMG projectiles in it. And, um, you know, there was a time when that stuff was fairly cheap and, and readily available. Right. Um, and, you know, if you have access to those projectiles, they're a blast to shoot. They're generally pretty darn accurate. And, uh, Man, they trace a long way. Yeah, I <laughs> trace a long way. <laughs> I imagine that just that image has stuck with me. Not necessarily always for the flaming aspect, but you know, shooting big, heavy lead bullets at slower velocities, where you know you have time to take a sip of your coffee before it hits the target, is kind of a <laughs> yeah. is kind of a fun fun idea. Uh, I don't right. know practical practicality, but who cares about practicality? 
Well, right, and that that's that was our thought on all that. I mean, we we you know it's it's not practical, uh, which is kind of why we did it. Right. I, yeah. Guys had a blast doing it. We always had a blast shooting them, and uh, and they sold well. I mean, guys enjoyed them. I, I, I we still get you know a lot of comments from guys about hey I you know I I have I have one of these guns and you know shoot this all the time and uh, but we have a blast with it. So uh, as long as you're doing it in the rainy season, you're okay. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, so uh, back to the back off of my my personal interest and to the, the back to the JDJ. We mentioned, or you mentioned rather, the six point five and the three seventy five being the most successful JDJs. Right. Why do you think those two particular are the most successful? Uh, those two are so enduring for for a host of reasons. I, I think I think all the two twenty five base cartridges are really great. Uh, they 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 are just such game getters. It's just uh, amazing. But the the, the six point five is just from from day one was just absolutely lethal on stuff. I mean, it was accurate, super accurate, low recoil. And I mean, just the the bullets in six five, just phenomenal performance on game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it just way beyond its size. I mean, you know, I think JD's first trip, he shot a zebra with the six five and mm. poleaxed it. You know, put it right down. So yeah. I, I think that the 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 again the things we spoke about earlier, the cases yeah. last a long time. They're easy to pretty easy to form. Uh, they are accurate, and and that's another thing that I think that that the JDJs have in that. You don't have to use bench rest techniques. You know, we constantly get, you know, guys want to I said, you can do whatever you want. I said, but we set them up so you don't need to. You know, we rarely trimmed anything. You know, we rarely right. trimmed anything. I mean, you know, we, we didn't we didn't get into a lot of these, any of these advanced loading techniques. We could have. We did sometimes when we needed to. But, I mean, we these cartridges don't require that. I mean, a guy can, 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 put, can load these things up. The fire form loads are phenomenally accurate. I mean, you can go out and hunt with the fire form loads, and we know I know a lot of guys deer hunt with the fire form loads. They are very accurate. So I think that they the cartridges are very accurate, and they are just great game getters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, same with the 375. The 375 is is extremely well known. Uh, I think uh, in 84, 85, it took a whole host of elephants. I'm not remember exact number of it, but it was over a dozen. Mm-hmm. So. Very good terminal performance. You had very good 375 bullets. The cartridge is manageable, uh, more manageable than the 4570. Uh, it gives you greater range. It's a 250-yard gun, and uh, it's just terminal performance on game is just just outstanding and couldn't be easier to make. One pass on the full-length sizing die forms the case, and that's it. You're ready to go. Uh, there's no fire forming with it. So just accuracy, power, and just uh, longevity of cases and just ease of reloading. I think those those points all hit very 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 well with those cartridges and and that's why their their popularity is so enduring. Yeah, and I I mean just thinking about from when I was a kid getting into all this stuff a fully ribbed contender with Packmeyer grips a TSOB yep. mount, you know, and a scope is in 375 is probably one of the top 5 most iconic hunting handguns of all time. Absolutely, without yeah. a doubt. It's it's funny when I think about that. How many of those I saw go out the door? How many mm-hmm. put together? It's just yeah. just just tons of them. And uh, even to this day, we do that. You know, we've had some pictures on our Facebook page of, of that gun, and mm-hmm. you know, our all our a lot of our uh, any of the some of the advertising we did we always featured the full length vent rib on the 
on the contender and 14 inch contender. So, uh, yes, very iconic gun, uh, sold just, I don't even know how many of them. It was extremely yeah. popular and, and, and still is, uh, still is to this day. I mean, it's still a very popular caliber. Yeah, You know, it's just one of those, as you said, very iconic gun. So what are some of the JDJ cartridges that probably have really good performance, maybe not equaling the 6.5, which seems to be kind of like the the golden child? Right. That so, maybe have so, flown under the radar. So any of the 225-based Wildcats, uh-huh. uh, we go from 22 to 226. Uh, the 226, there's a six number two, there's a 257, uh, of course the 6.5, and there's also a seven millimeter mm-hmm. and a 270. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we kind of went with that cartridge case clear up to seven millimeter and, um, 257 is just the stellar performer. It very, very close to the six, five. I mean, it on deer and antelope, I mean, wow, it's, it just zaps them. So, uh, the 257 was always very good, but any of them. Uh, were, were, were very good performers within given bullet weights uh, available. Uh, uh, 270, you know, there's a host of good ones. Seven millimeters, a host of really good ones that work well. Uh, and you get the same performance out of all the cases, no matter what size you get. I mean, you get outstanding case life, ease of ease of forming, um, you know, accuracy, um, and all those with 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 all of them. You know, I think uh, 6.5 has always been a, one of JD's favorite board diameters. You know, uh, in, in a lot of his trips, he, he favored it, and, and it and it took off. You know, uh, as 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 the most popular, and justifiably so. It was you know an outstanding performer. But uh, but like I said, the the two larger brothers of the six five, the two seventy, and the seven millimeter, also again, very good performers uh, with uh, with certain bullets. Uh, you know, uh, and, and in many ways mirror what the six five does. That's good to hear. So are there any JDJ cartridges or things that you guys worked on that you got to completion and then they didn't actually work as well as you had hoped? Uh, well, there are always some. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there are always some uh, that, that didn't. And now not necessarily because uh, we didn't think that they were good. You know, the 8mm JDJ uh, and the, the 9.3 JDJ were two that, you know, just never hit off well here in America. Mm, yeah. um, you know, the, the two metric bores that we did, uh, even though they had very good bullets, I mean, there's a lot of really good 8mm bullets uh, that work well in the 8mm JDJ. But, you know, you're going up against the 30 cal in America, and that's right. it doesn't they don't go head to head well because, you know, everybody's got 30 cal bullets, 30 cal rifles, and that's always been a mainstay in the United States. So uh, the 8mm and the, and the 9.3 JDJ, which is a 366, it's Europe, European version of the 375. There were a whole host of good bullets available, but they were more expensive foreign bullets, you know, RWS and those sorts of things. You know, those cartridges, while we, I felt they were very good cartridges, just just never never took a real hold, mainly because of their, you know, the metric uh, designation. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So today, being you know still involved hot and heavy at SSK Firearms, what, how popular are the JDJ cartridges today? So uh, the the 444 based uh, cartridges are good, do do well. The 225 based cartridges would do well if Winchester would run us some 225 rounds. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it has not been available in around 15 years. 
Uh, we have uh, been looking. We've looked at what's available. Uh, there are some companies making some of that, and um, just what's available brass-wise right now is not acceptable. So, you know, hopefully here when we uh, get the new receiver out and available and we get kind of that under our belt, we'll mm-hmm. focus a little more on possibly getting into getting some 225 Winchester brass available again. Gotcha. Uh, at least that's what I'd like to see us do. But the, the JDJs still do, uh, still do, uh, you know, very well. Uh, the 6.5 and the two and the 375 are the best-selling dies, <laughs> still. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, they, they they still do very well. That's good to know. That's good to hear because they are great. I uh, I want to talk to you offline about that a little bit as well with the brass and et cetera. But that kind of answers the the my last question about you know, the future of JDJ cartridges as far as, you know, remaining available. And, but I mean, I know a large, a large part of that's going to depend on components being available, but I know that SSK is going to keep making them as long as they can. And I know that handgun hunters, you know, we proselytize about, <laughs> about some of those, about some of those calibers for sure. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited. And uh, it's really good to hear how, you guys are, you know, kind of holding down the fort on this front. Well, that was all part of the deal when, uh, you know, when when uh, when the SSK was purchased from JDJ, the, from JD, the new owners. Mm-hmm. You know, I told them, hey, you know, all the SSK baggage comes with me. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, all the stuff that we do and that we are we are known to do and that we've done well, you know, that stuff is first and foremost in my mind. And you know, getting away from that is just too far. It's not going to be very acceptable to me, you know, because that stuff works. Uh, it's proven. Uh, it's been proven all over the world. It's uh, been tested in all the game fields there are, and uh, it works. So those are those are winning combinations. So you can't steer away from that uh, and, and still be SSK. You know, as long as I'm here, we're going to focus up and make sure that all that stuff is continues to go that way and, the, and that we – you know, we continue to, to offer those cartridges and we continue to, you know, to, to put out um, that iconic hand cannon that everybody uh, associates with us, Yeah. you know, into the future. That's great. Brian, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and, and just giving us your time. You are a wealth of information and a heck of a guest. I know people are going to love this one. Thank you. You're very welcome. I, I really enjoyed that one. That one was so amazing. And Brian, what a nice guy, what an expert in his field. And just, I could have talked with him for hours about all that stuff. I'm, I'm really grateful to him. I know that we'll do another one with him uh, sometime in the future. He is just working hard to guard the mission of SSK, keep them primarily focused on what SSK does well. And that is pretty much innovate, I guess it would be my description of it. I, I've followed them since I was a youngster and it's really cool to see them moving into the future, even with their new ownership, just cranking out good stuff. I know that uh, handgun hunters have a good partner in SSK Firearms moving forward, especially with Brian Alberts at the helm there as their manager. Thanks again to Brian for giving his time to do this and for all the information he shared with me offline as well. I hope you guys enjoyed it and I'll see you on the next one. This podcast is produced by Handgun Hunters International. 
HHI is the only organization dedicated solely to supporting and growing the sport of handgun hunting. Membership gets you access to our great, well-moderated forum where friendly handgun hunters of all experience levels share stories and information from folks that have actual experience in our sport. We also host giveaways to our members of guns, gear, and ammo every month, and each prize is worth several times what membership costs. In addition to this podcast, we publish a free digital magazine, The Six Gunner, which is written exclusively by HHI members. If you are a handgun hunter or support handgun hunting in any way, you need to be a member of HHI. Join today at handgunhuntersinternational.com. Again, if you have any questions on how to get started in handgun hunting, please reach out to me at ryan at handgunhuntersinternational.com. If you think we deserve it, please leave us a five-star review and don't forget to follow Handgun Hunters International on social media at handgunhuntersint. God bless and good hunting. Good hunting.